Hi, it's Delegate Mike McKay, District 1C, serving Allegheny and Washington counties. You're listening to my go-to source for news and insight on Maryland policy and politics, the Conduit Street Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with my co-host, Michael Sanderson. Michael, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Kevin? I'm doing really well. A little bit tired. A little tired. A little now, bit tired. Now, our, our listeners have been fidgeting. There's been people pacing and, and starting to mill about outside the Mako offices, wondering when the next podcast Picket is going to drop. That's right. right. So right. it's been coming together. We've been off for a while, but that's for a very good reason. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> my wife and I had our first child last Saturday, Yay. so... Yeah, been at home trying to get some rest and spending time with the baby, but obviously uh, sad to miss last week's podcast, but I think we have a really good episode this week. And of course, you were on the other side of the globe looking at Guam. It's the closest I've been to Guam, and it's just, it's whetted my appetite even further. So I got out into the Pacific, and I got a chance to to orient myself toward Guam. I tried to share a photograph, and I think if you squint really, really hard, you can just make out the, the beginnings of Guam. You got closer than we've ever gotten, so yeah, definitely. <laughs> one step at a time, right? One yeah. step at a time. But today on the podcast, we're going to talk about some interesting election tidbits, Yesterday was an election day, not so much in Maryland, but we had some significant races and ballot questions across the country. And then we'll get into some Kerwin chatter. So, Michael, first of all, interesting election tidbits. And a lot of people are doing the usual analysis. Talk a little bit about that. That's not what we're going to do today. Right. I mean, obviously, the the political talking head class is in overdrive. Uh, We're recording the morning after uh, a a big election in a lot of states. In in Maryland, it was a municipal election year, and there's some results from various places. Um, Nothing at the county level and nothing at the state level here. So mostly we're watching things from other places. We're not going to try and get into this red stuff and blue stuff and talk about, you know, why this party did this and what happened to that party and so forth. But I do think there's a lane for us to talk a little bit about election results. There were some ballot questions and some some issues that led to uh, election outcomes that I think maybe cast a shadow on future policy debates here in Maryland. And that's that's our lane. Right. So I think we, we've got some things to talk about from, from this week's election. Yeah, we certainly like the ballot questions. And I know Michael was up all night last night into the morning watching <laughs> these results come in so that we could talk about them today. It's fun. So for, first of all, Michael, everyone is talking about the big headline yesterday, what's going on in Kentucky. Kentucky, uh, a state where demographically really different from Maryland, politically speaking, uh, you know, years and years ago, 50 years ago, uh, Kentucky was a swing state, purple state state because of a lot of residual rural alliance to the Democratic Party. That's changed over time. It's been a reliably red state. Uh, The governor's office went blue. Uh, We're still sorting that out. And there's a little back and forth about whether the the incumbent is going to actually concede the election. There might be a recount. We don't know. But nonetheless, it looks like uh, the Democratic challenger, who is a familiar name in the state, is not a, not a completely untested quantity, right. um, is, is going to prevail there. What, what I think is interesting is, is we heard about Kentucky in the news in public policy circles a, cu- 
couple of years ago on the watch of this governor for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, they have a public pension system that is in real crisis. Real crisis. So we we talk in, in Maryland about we have an unfunded liability in our state pension system, which funds state employees, a lot of counties, and all our teachers. Mm-hmm. And we know there's an unfunded liability there. We're on a multi-year plan to get that back up to, to a higher standard, and we're, we're doing our best on that front. Sure. Um, Kentucky's got an awful lot farther to go than Maryland does. They're in a crisis circumstance. And uh, Governor Bevin had suggested some major reforms that would have involved really deep concessions on the part of teachers and count and the state employees. Right. And and the governor, you know, Governor Bevin has publicly sparred with teachers and, you know, public employee unions, made some, you know, inflammatory accusations and really been very public about his feelings toward the unions and that they need to just sort of just take this lying down. They fought back. I think what we're interested here is that even in Kentucky, as you said, is is politically different than Maryland. It's never, you know, maybe it never can work out. If you're going to go against the unions and the teachers, you better expect one heck of a fight. And it seems like he lost that fight to the Democratic challenger. Right. And that's, I mean, that's a, that's a state that is not as philosophically aligned with unions and teachers uh, as Maryland might be. So you can't help but if you see that as a meaningful part of what happened in Kentucky, right? Um, you can't help in Maryland but wonder, okay, we have a Republican governor who has, you know, had his moments with particularly the state teachers union. And, you know, that's that's been a headline grabber from time to time. He's he's relatively tight lipped. He's he's not a, an off the cuff shoot from the hip guy like Governor Bevin is notorious for being. Right. So right. Governor Hogan is not that style of politician, uh, but he's chosen his words carefully from time to time and and found some choice ones in talking about the leadership of state teachers union and and being concerned about their you know their involvement in things like the Kerwin plan and so forth. Right. He hasn't so, been shy at all to to bring right. them up and. In his disdain for you know some of the, the their methods, if if you will, right. So, I, I think that's an interesting takeaway. I, I don't think I don't think as goes Kentucky, so goes Maryland. I don't think there's anything like that. But the the prevalence of debate about the role of public sector unions. We've had this long, longer term conversation about the court stripping some of their, you know, some right. of their strength away uh, in, in dealing with non-represented members. Um, this is a, a relatively big issue. And in, in, in a union shop state like Maryland, probably even more so. So there's a lot of grounding for public sector unions and teacher unions here in Maryland. Uh, your relationship with them as a Republican Party leader probably matters a good deal. It definitely mattered in Kentucky, and it probably matters in Maryland. Maybe this governor can get away with being on the right side of that fight like he has with other fights. But I think that's one of the more interesting takeaways. Not a lot of Kentucky just transports to Maryland, but that particular issue I think is pretty interesting. Yeah, and definitely catching some headlines, grabbing some headlines, and something to pay attention to for sure. Michael, another interesting result last night, it was out of Virginia. 
And Democrats now have the governor's mansion and the House of Delegates and Senate, or the House of Representatives right. in Virginia. Yeah. So the trifecta, that's the first time that they've had that sort of control since 1994. Right. So that's that's been some time, and that's that's a pretty long win- window of time. Um, I would imagine that it's just a matter of time before our colleagues, our counterparts at the Virginia Association of Counties and, down and in by Richmond. The way, great podcast too. If you haven't checked it out, listen to it because yes. they do a great job. Yeah, we like we like the the county pulse. So, yes. we, so we 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 like um, we like our friends at Vaco. We're actually going to be down in Richmond to talk with them. But I bet you on the agenda for our chat with them is not just going to be running the association, but also like so. Uh, what's it like what having do? blue people all over town? Because right. this is kind of new to us. Right. I'm sure, those questions are going to come up. Big change in the landscape in Virginia, though. It's it's an interesting twist. Um, and you know, Virginia, whether it's a good or a bad thing, I don't know. But with them being an odd numbered year for their political cycles. Uh, a lot of their legislature run in two-year terms. So these are some of the same people we saw just two years ago. But they get sort of a you know their day in the sun where you know, Maryland is on the same cycle as quite a lot of other states. It's a really common, the off-even year that's not the presidential year is the typical year for a lot of state elections. And then, Michael, we've talked about ranked choice voting before. We had another big city approve ranked choice voting. This was a ballot question in New York City. Voters approved it, and they did so quite handedly. Right. So this issue is gaining momentum, this ranked choice voting. Remind right. our listeners again what this is and why it's gaining so much momentum, not just in New York, but literally across the country. Well, I, I think this this is a structured voting way where when you go into the, when you go into cast your ballot, you end up basically ordering the candidates in your order of preference. Right. And on a certain level, what we're trying to accomplish is the equivalent of having runoff elections. When you have more than two candidates seeking one election, one, one seat, either in a primary or in a general election, the idea of having, you know, there are places like we hear this all the time in like Louisiana, mm-hmm. they almost always have the November election, and then they have to do a runoff because nobody got 50% right. because there are three, four, five candidates. Right. So then they just take the top two and they do a separate election, which means more campaigning, another round of issues, sometimes a separate round of, you know, like the costs, uh, probably the mm-hmm. parishes down there have to have to run the elections again and so forth. So one way to avoid that, other than using a primary system to unofficially create a runoff right. is ask every voter, who's your first choice? Who's your second choice? Who's your third choice? Give us all that stuff. And then we can basically run the results of here are all five candidates. Now we'll drop the lowest vote getter and those votes will be reallocated among the others. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now we'll take the fourth place person and then you get down to two candidates and then you run off. How do people choose between those two candidates? Yes. So, and of course, in the first round, if a candidate has a majority, then they win. It's right? Over, right? So it's over. But but like you said, I mean, you get to go in and rank. So if you like, you know, multiple candidates and you have a hard time choosing, you don't just pick one now. You get to order in your in terms of preference. And that way, I think the idea is less negative campaigning. They have to reach more voters. You're not just looking to your block of voters. So being able to rank your candidates, it also gives you, you know, I guess, it makes you feel better about, well, I really like this candidate. I don't think they can win. But if I can rank number two, who I think has a better chance, I'm not just throwing my vote away, quote unquote. So I don't know. It's an interesting system. But New York going to this is obviously a big deal. We've seen other cities do it. We've seen Maine does it for their statewide elections. But again, this is really starting to gain momentum here. 
All right. So I think it's, I think this is more than just a novelty idea. Mm-hmm. So um, this is probably a trend. Uh, the idea, I, I think it's also interesting that it's New York City. Also, uh, San Francisco does this to do this. I think Tacoma Park in Maryland already does this. Mm-hmm. So there's a foothold in, in the state. Uh, places like San Francisco and New York City and large urban areas that are, for the most part, dominated by a single party. Right. I find that an interesting element of this, that this is not necessarily places like Louisiana that are two parties competing head to head and frequently sending things to a runoff of the top two, frequently one from each party, but not necessarily so. Right. New York, you pretty much know, you know, one party is going to win. Right. San and, Francisco, and, same I, thing. Same thing. So, so, you know, quite a lot of America's big urban areas are, are structured that way politically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think that, I think it's interesting that that's where this is picking up. Um, to some degree, this looks like it's, it's an idea being championed by political progressives not necessarily because it will generate more progressive candidates or winners, but I think a lot of progressive voters are persuaded that this is a way for them to have more direct influence on the process. Right. So, so that's, I mean, I, I find all of that interesting as a policy argument, aside from what you think about the politics of who wins votes. Well, we've already seen a twist. I mean, Michael, as you were up all night last night, there was a meaningful result in San Francisco where, you know, you have a quote unquote winner and you see the ramifications of what can happen with ranked choice voting. Right. So, so in, in one of the, the races, I think for, um, for the city council in San Francisco, California, there were four candidates running in the general election, all of whom got pretty substantial support. This wasn't like a 49-49-1-1, one, one, but uh, in, in for the first ballot, so just counting who was ranked first by all the voters, right. you had candidate D on the list had the most votes. But because nobody had 50%, they exercised the ranked choice system. And that means, you know, candidate B, I think, was the first one to be eliminated. And her votes were then reassigned based on the ranked choice system among the other three candidates. Still, nobody had 50%. So then candidate C was removed and you're left with A and D. And in the process of reallocating the votes from candidates B and C, candidate A picked up enough votes in that process to get past candidate D, who had the most first places. Now, obviously, candidate D is probably not happy there, but also, you you know, there are some people who are going to cry foul. This is the intended outcome of a ranked choice process to get past merely awarding the win to who has a plurality. Mm-hmm. So this is this is the system working as it's intended. I mean, you, you, like this is a feature, not a bug. Also, now that we've seen it in action and there'll be an aggrieved party, somebody who ran and said, I got more votes than she did, but now she's going to get the seat because of this cockeyed system. Right. Um, I mean, I, I think it'll that'll that'll add a facet to this debate. I don't know of another high profile election that's that's followed this path. I haven't seen one, but you're right. That's how it's supposed to work. It, it is. I mean, the whole purpose is. I mean, there are there are some places in in Maryland we don't have runoff elections. A plurality is enough. Mm-hmm. So I think it's an interesting new component into what's going to be an ongoing debate. And we've seen legislation in Maryland. I was going to say, you mentioned Maryland, not yet. Right. We don't have ranked choice voting yet, but we've seen those bills, right? So we've got, you know, we've got it in Tacoma Park. So, Mm -hmm. so, you know, I I don't, I don't know. I don't know how you finish as goes, as goes Tacoma Park. So goes 
I don't know who the next domino to fall in Maryland. Mm, yeah, uh, but yeah, but they're but, unique. But as a as a as a practical matter, odds are very good we'll see ranked choice voting introduced as legislation, probably as a local option. Right. But the idea of a statewide option for ranked choice voting and this becoming something that Marylanders might need to get used to could happen in the mm-hmm. future. I'm tr- I'm trying to imagine a voter. Um, considering the field of presidential aspirants. Now that now that running for president as the non-incumbent party seems to be sure. 20 or 30 candidates, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to imagine sitting there at a, with a primary ballot and numbering one through 19, all these different people. And I don't know, her or mm, him for right, 11th place right. on my ballot. <laughs> right. it, it, would, it would be uh, quite the exercise. Let's just put it that way. Right. So obviously, again, an issue that's gaining momentum, we're likely to see... More legislation in 2020 having to do with ranked choice voting in Maryland. Stay tuned for that. Yeah, I think so. Michael, let's head down to North Carolina. I thought this was interesting. In in Mecklenburg County, this is Charlotte. Voters rejected a plan to raise the local sales tax, which obviously that's going to be a tough sell. A quarter cent to 7.5%. It would have raised $50 million for arts and culture, parks and greenways, education, and then for local towns to spend on arts or parks. You know, it's interesting in Charlotte. Quite often, the, the residents there are polled, and parks are one of the most important things to them. So mm-hmm. I think lab- doing it this way to say, hey, we're going to raise the income tax, but we're going to do it in the name of parks and schools, you maybe thought you had a chance, but the voters shot that down. Right. So I think there are a lot of people who like this approach to, to tax policy, the idea of if you're going to make a change in a tax rate. Uh, put it before the people as a referendum or as a ballot question, lay out the specific uses. You know, this is exactly what the tax rate change is going to be. These are the things it's going to be used for. What do the people say? Right. So there are a number of people, some of whom are anti-tax, some of whom are just maybe pro-transparency, mm-hmm. would say this is the right way to do tax policy. Um, I grew up in, in rural Ohio where school systems, most of the state I think works this way, if they want to change their property tax rate, which is for schools, that automatically is a referendum matter to the voters across the district. So the, you know, the, the mill rate is what everybody calls sure, it back there. Sure. So anyway, there, there are various ways to do this. Um, you put this on the ballot with a variety of purposes and it fails. I, I wonder if, if this had been for education only, if it might have stood a stronger chance. I'm wondering the same thing, right? Yeah. For obvious reasons. I mean, we know in Maryland, you know, there's been a little bit of talk maybe in the future about putting something on the ballot regarding Kerwin and education funding. I wonder if you took the parks and the arts off of this and just made it about schools, whether or not the results would have been different. Yeah, you do a ballot question that says the money's going to be spent on all six of these items. On a certain level, you're almost requiring a voter to agree with all six exactly. things on the list. Exactly. Sometimes these have a they stand a stronger chance when it's like this money is for transit. This money is for transportation. This money is for education, period. Right. Uh, cleaner, more direct. So I, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not going to second guess the wisdom of the powers that be in Mecklenburg County, but the voters there have spoken and it's not happening in this way. Not happening. Moving to Texas, Michael. Texas is always interesting. And let's talk about a statewide sales tax. Now, Hold on, we're not doing a sales tax no, here. No? no, no, not doing that. So, so uh, I mean, first of all, Texas is uh, 
not probably not one of a kind, but Texas has an aggressive stance on taxes. Uh, they they don't rely on the same tax structure that most states and local governments do. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have more limits and more restrictions on revenue sources. They don't have a state income tax. We hear about that from time to time. The idea of a statewide sales tax uh, was was bandied around. There actually already is a law, as I understand it. Like this, this seems like not not even belt and suspenders, right, right. but it's sort of like uh, putting it in the vault right, and a chastity belt or something. Yes, like, yes. like the whole deal. Yeah. So already they couldn't enact a sales tax without the voters approving it in a statewide election. So it had to be basically the equivalent of a constitutional amendment. I don't know what the what the margin needs to be to amend the constitution, but it already had to be a referendum to do something like that, anyhow. And now they've put it in the Constitution. No way, no how. This Not is, doing it. This is like this is classic. Like, don't mess with Texas. Don't right? mess with Texas. <laughs> it's a perfect way to transition to Colorado. Again, we're talking about taxes. This was an effort to end Tabor refunds. We're talking about the Taxpayer Bill of Rights in Colorado. They have a revenue cap. This ballot question would have allowed the state to keep any of the excess tax revenues above the state spending cap. That money would have been used to fund road infrastructure improvements and education. This was also defeated. Right. So I think one thing that we find true is the further west you go, not only does the air get a little thinner and some things make it, may get a little bit different when you go further west, but the the way the people get to express their opinions on policy changes and expands. Mm -hmm. And Colorado is not quite California where every year you've got a giant booklet of ballot questions that were all citizen initiated written by, you know, some social studies class. Like, I mean, you don't have like 70 ballot issues, but you do have a great deal of important policy being set by referendum level ballot questions. So things like a taxpayer's bill of rights sort of in, Maryland, that would be the equivalent of a county having a property tax cap. We have a few charter counties who do that. Right. We don't have the initiative process here. You can't stand in front of the grocery store with a clipboard, get a sufficient number of signatures, and put a question before the people. Right. You can basically appeal something that the legislature has passed get that on the ballot. and say, I don't like that. I want that on the ballot. Citizens can do that, but you can't start the process yourself here. Colorado, you can. California, you can. Many of the Western states, you can. And that leads to things like, let's have a limit on taxes. Sounds good. I'll sign up. Right. right. Even if there's also a ballot question that says, we want to set these big ambitious targets for, we want to fund our transit systems and our highways and our schools. We want to do all those things. Oh, yeah, I'll vote for I that, like that too. also. Right, right, right. And it turns out you can't actually reconcile these two ideas uh, with any, any natural way. So this was an effort to try and smooth out the differences between two competing ideas and say, if there's an overage in local tax revenues above the level set in a previous initiative set, Right. Uh, that that money can go for these limited purposes. Right now it's returned to the taxpayers. Right. Right now, yeah, if you make more than, than the cap, you start writing checks. Yep. And you send people their, you know, $11.44 check, right? So so anyway, voters said, nope, leave things as they are. And 
uh, I don't know. There's a superficial appeal of having direct democracy on well-framed voting voter issues. Um, I don't know. You look at the experience of the decisions being made in some of the Western states. Uh, I come away less impressed with the idea in practice than I think you might have thought in theory. <laughs> I agree with that. I agree with that. And also, easy to say from a, from an Eastern state that doesn't do anything like sure. This. I mean, you really, you know, you're you're tying your hands in a lot of ways, and you kind of have to sort of unravel these things when you need money. But also in Colorado, though, Michael, we did see voters narrowly approve the legalization of sports betting. We've talked about sports betting on the podcast before. We expect to see this on the ballot in Maryland in 2020. In Colorado, there'll be an excise tax of 10% of net betting proceeds. All right. So uh, this is an obvious trend. We talked about this when the Supreme Court sort of lifted its overall restriction on states engaging in this area. I mean, for a long time, it was Nevada was the only state that had really a green light to do this and some very limited activity in one of our neighboring states, Delaware. Right. Since then, they've said this is now a state level issue. A number of our surrounding states have already moved on this. We're seeing states like Colorado put it on the ballot and do it. Uh, the smart money is that Maryland will probably have a chance to vote on this at the ballot next fall. I agree. And finally, Michael, there is an interesting trend, speaking of the West Coast, going on with corporations and their influence in elections. Let's get into that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we want to dig super deep, but I thought this was an interesting story from some municipal elections on the West Coast. If you're a city like Seattle and you've got some big corporate citizens. Starbucks, you know, Amazon. Big, big shots, you know, right, named after right. giant rivers, things right, like that. Yeah, right. yeah, exactly, right? So um, I don't think there's anything new about a, a corporation that has a big presence in a community taking a stake in the community and thinking about land use and thinking about taxes and thinking about policy and so forth. So there's nothing new about that. Right. And we and we see that sort of thing happen in Maryland. It's not like that's a new concept. So, you know, something that affects the that affects the the lodging industry. Uh, Marriott is a giant lodging international, you know, conglomerate who's headquartered in the state of Maryland, and they're a meaningful player when the state is weighing what to do, you know, on policies that would affect hotels and lodging. Okay, that makes sense. Makes sense. Right? Yeah, right, they're here, right? Right. right. So. Uh, Anyway, the idea of policy for the city of Seattle and the elections that lead to who makes that policy, fine, corporations having a role there isn't anything new. I thought it was interesting that at least according to some, you know, some coverage of the city council elections in Seattle, it looks like rather than running like a slate of candidates who would be either Republicans or take on particular positions that would be pro-business positions. Just straight uh, anti-tax. Right. right. Yeah. Or like, or like we want to cut down on regulations for our, for the, you know, building permits. Or, right. You know, let's, let's cut down the red tape. Environmental sort of regulations. Right. Yeah, whatever. Right. right? Um, in, instead, it looks like there was a, a, a corporate led effort to promote a series of really progressive candidates to fight, you know, to basically to, to, to take on progressive incumbent candidates. So, so what's this about? And this it, is a lot of money. Yeah. So it's like a, a, like a good deal of money behind a variety of candidates who were showing up embracing issues that nominally don't seem to really be front and center for the corporate community. Right. So if you've got the city of Seattle that says we're going to do a $15 minimum wage 
everybody's going to get sick leave. Uh, we're going to do a tax on corporations to fund and, and offset homelessness. I mean, these, these are some, some West Coast ideas, Progressive ideas that have been showing up in city centers in particular in that neck of the woods in Silicon Valley, Northern California, uh, the Pacific Northwest. We've seen some of these ideas bubble up in that region of the country. So it's interesting to see some of the corporate community say, you know what, there's a whole slate of candidates and what they care about are progressive issues, just different ones. So we're really interested in equity and we're interested in diversity and we're interested in some other issues that are also on the plate for progressive voters. So not pushing the button for let's cut taxes, let's cut regulations, let's grow jobs, but instead sort of like, let's focus on other things that progressives also like. So here's the menu. We like all these things. <laughs> right. But here at the bottom, let's not highlight this, but we right. don't like this By the one. Way, but yeah, you're going to like all this other we're stuff. Not, we're not all that into the minimum wage thing. Right, right. <laughs> so it is interesting, though, right? I mean, yeah. it's an interesting strategy of, you know, understanding your your, your landscape and that you're right. not going to be able to put candidates up who are straight – you know, pro-business, anti-these progressive ideas, they understand that. So instead, they've, they've taken a new approach. And I think that is fascinating. Right. And, and I mean, it's not, a, it's not a stretch to imagine the same sort of thing happening on the other side of the political spectrum. I mean, you have a hodgepodge of issues that are traditionally associated with conservative or Republican candidates. Could you see a coalition of candidates who are trying to appeal to voters on on sort of family values sure, issues or sure. on guns or on abortion when really what they are trying to do is uh, maybe frustrate what's been going on on taxes or business regulations or, the, or other things like that? And, you know, it's just I think it's really interesting to see the idea of a almost almost a divide and conquer within one side of the political spectrum. Forget it. We're not we're not going to run Republicans in the city of Seattle and take over the city council. Right. But if we run a different breed of progressives, maybe we can get a change of direction there. I'm interested. Do you think it's disingenuous? <laughs> um, I, I I don't know. I might need to. It's, it's I, an I, interesting I might question. To, I might need to think on that a little bit. I, I mean, you'd have to think that. At a candidate forum or in your literature, if you're really if you're really showing up and you're planning to roll back, you know the the, the sick leave bill or the minimum wage bill or something like that. If that's really what you're after, right. you, you know you you want to cut corporate taxes or that sort of thing. You think that that that's going to be in your literature someplace? Or certainly, it's going to come up at a candidate right. forum. And and like the way campaigns are funded are generally speaking something you can document. I right. know there's you know there's dark money and there's you know, um, or you know, five oh five oh nine organizations that are that are you know that are hard to track and trace and that sure, sort of thing. Sure. In, in the age of Citizens United, it's a little tough to know exactly where money's coming from. But if you're a candidate receiving a lot of dark money, that itself can be a campaign issue. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'd like to think this stuff would come to light in general. And if you're doing something disingenuous, you should get a knock in the election process. Mm-hmm. Interesting strategy moving forward, and certainly, I think, portable, as you said, Michael, to to other parties and other races across the country. Okay, so we'll leave it there with the interesting ballot issues. When we come back, we're going to catch up on some numerous items related to school funding, our favorite topic, all that and more after the break. The Local Government Insurance Trust is the primary source for Maryland local governments to get insurance coverage. When the private insurance market doesn't understand your needs and doesn't really want to be in the business of covering your law enforcement officers and other public employees, Legit will be there. 
That is exactly why Legit was created over 30 years ago. Legit is different. Legit is owned and managed by its local government members. That means that when we do well, you do well. Members get premium credits when the trust has a good year. And Legit offers training and best practices year-round to make sure our members are doing their best with risk management. Competitive prices, outstanding service, and coverage that fits your needs as a local government. You can't beat Legit for all your coverage needs. Find out more at lgit.org or drop by their exhibit space at the MML or MAKO conference. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canelli back here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, we haven't been able to speak for a few weeks about the Kerwin Commission on Innovation and Excellence in Education. There has been a lot going on there. They did have a meeting. The The full work group got back together, the full commission, mm-hmm. after the formula funding work group submitted its recommendations. But there's a lot going on sort of outside looking in with this commission, a, a lot of players on the outside speaking up and making their voices heard here. Let's talk yeah. about what this commission did in its first meeting, and then some of the stuff that's surrounding the commission swirling. Honestly, I think the the surrounding stuff is actually the story at the moment because uh, the the full commission reconvened and basically spent a full day getting caught up. Um, so, I mean, it's been since January since right. the full commission actually had a meeting. So since then, their proposal turned into some modified legislation that got passed. The funding has already been flowing for the first round of those those steps. So, I mean, the, the commission sort of needed to be brought up to speed on here's what happened through the legislature. Here's what's going on at the implementation of those pieces that are in that legislation. And the formula funding work group spent a couple of months and, and and finally, it's come up with its recommendations, and here they are. So we need to show all of that. Yeah, to here's you as how well. they nestle with your ideological points of view that you articulated in your interim report. So, right. so that I mean, so that right there was a, a full day, and there's several new members of the commission, including a new a new county representative of the commission. So, you know, bring everybody up to speed, get everybody on the same page. A good deal of review if you had been sitting through all the meetings of the work group for the last couple of months. But if you haven't, now you know what, you know, sort of what, you know, the, I don't know, the, the, the serve is now in your court, right? right. You, you, so now you got to decide what to do. The other interesting items, Michael, sort of surrounding the commission. The first one has to do with the governor. And there was a contentious moment in another education-related <laughs> meeting where basically Dr. Kerwin invited the governor to come before the Kerwin Commission. Let's hash this all out. Let's talk about what we can do, what we can't do. Let's work together. And so they extended that invitation to the governor and what happened? Right. So as we know, the, the governor over the last several weeks, really starting back in August, has has raised his profile on the issue and has expressed, let's say, skepticism and maybe outright opposition to the plan as it's coming together. And, and we, the governor's point right, is this is yeah. going to lead to increased taxes. That, right. That's the whole premise behind right. his opposition. Right. And I think I think he's he's said he's not satisfied that this is a new idea that right. looks too much like more of the same, just just more money. And and I think that's 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 a common theme in with skeptics of the plan is that 
you know, we didn't solve every single problem when we did the Thornton plan years ago. We put a lot of more money into education, and here we are still frustrated with outcomes. Why would another wave of money solve all the problems? So right. anyway, the specifics aside, just as sort of chess pieces here, uh, the Kerwin Commission reaches out to the governor and says, you've been public, you've been, you've raised concerns with the things that we're talking about and we're suggesting. Come to one of our meetings and let's talk it out. Sure. And the governor's response was, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it, but right. I do have a representative who is there speaking for me. Right. So, so, and, and that's, I mean, that was structurally the case from the beginning. Uh, not only is the state superintendent of schools, you know, sort of representing a statewide perspective, but the governor's own budget secretary is a member and has been, has been attending virtually every meeting of this body going back now three years. Mm-hmm. So secretary Brinkley is there. Um, I think it would be fair to say that in the last couple of months, he's been a little more vocal and more at will to sort of speak his mind and, and, you know, sort of pipe in, pipe up when, when he feels like they've said something that they don't agree with. Yes. So it's, it's not like the point of view from the administration is lacking, but we're going to miss what would have been an all hands on deck media spectacle to have the governor himself at the witness stand with every light lit, every member of the commission. I mean, it would would look like a Christmas tree up there with every single microphone light would be, Mr. Chairman, I I, I want to be next. Right. Right. So you can kind of understand why maybe he didn't want to, didn't want to go, but he does again, have multiple representatives there who are speaking on his behalf and sort of relaying his message. Message. And he will continue, I'm sure, to relay his message in a, in in the public forum as well, right. just not in front of the Kerwin Commission. Right. So so that's I mean, and that itself, I think it's a testament to how big of a deal this school funding plan is. That just the just the public announcement that the governor's not coming to a meeting ends up being, I don't know, it felt like 48, 72 hours of oxygen in Annapolis. Every headline. Absorbed. Everybody's just completely in, in, in a snit over, oh my God, how big of a deal is this? Does this, does this mean it's all over? Is it, you know, and no, no, it's, it's, it's a relatively predictable step sure. in a process like this. But so nonetheless, um, this is a big deal. A lot of people paying attention. We had, we had some drama within the last couple of weeks about this idea. The drama. Yeah, drama. And, and Michael, we, we've also seen, <laughs> Uh, you know, Democrats rallying the troops, and we've seen <coughs> yeah. advertisements all over the place. I know drumbeat, yeah. the drumbeat. Yeah. You can't watch the local news or Jeopardy, you know, right. without seeing commercial after commercial about the blueprint and why it's so important and why we need to do this now. So, really, on that side of the issue, you're you're seeing this ramping up. The drumbeat, as you said, rallying the troops to get this done and try to get the public opinion on their side of this issue. Right, and that's. Obviously, it's it's interesting because if you're trying to buy television advertising or radio advertising, you got a window of time, probably 30 seconds at most, right? So, how much can you convey in 30 seconds? I mean, we've had we've had county officials come to multiple meetings, and we're talking like six hour meetings of the Kerwin Commission, and come away feeling like I still don't really have a sense of everything they're trying to get to, right? I mean, I, I, I sat as a panelist at a, at a session with a chamber of commerce last week and we had a full room and we talked for an hour and 20 minutes and collectively we looked around and when it was done and said, 
we just barely scratched the surface on this. It's true. I mean, it is a challenge right. to try and make a commercial, a 30-second spot right. that explains exactly what this is. Right. So, so in 30 seconds, what do you do? I've seen an ad where there's two kids and they both want to learn how to weld. Right. And one kid has, you know, has a program that lets him learn how to weld. And the other student, her school doesn't offer that program. So she's twiddling thumbs at a desk and waiting for that program to show up. So that so, adds focus on the career so, and technical education. Right. Piece. So, so we would try and emphasize, like, we're, we're, we're going to try and bring the offerings up to snuff for all students, no matter where you live, which mm-hmm. that's one of the rallying cries of the Kerwin Commission, right. that things shouldn't depend on your on your zip code and that sort of thing. Okay, so but but you know you choose one candidly relatively tiny item mm-hmm. out of this whole menu to focus on and say you know vote for the whole package. You've got a message in some way. You have to communicate what this is generally about, right? And, you know, I mean, so I I think we'll see more of the same in the months ahead. And we're also seeing regional meetings right across the state. Sure. So so um, and that's, you know, promoted by a variety of stakeholders. There are there are a couple of different groups who I I don't know of them existing before the last couple of years. So I think they've sort of been formed as a way to coalesce multiple stakeholders. Right. and and so um, you know, strong schools for Maryland and and, and other group you know groups of that nature organize a rally in your county seat, and your superintendent and your school board chair comes. Your teachers union leaders will be there. Some other nonprofits and like the ACLU will show up. So you know you 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 have like a big pep rally sort of thing, and everybody stands up and has, says their piece about what we're going to do and what we need and what we have to get done and so forth. And people jump up and down and cheer and get excited. I mean that's that's the way you build grassroots support. Sure. So that when you know if and when this is a tough vote for that senator from that district, um, there are dozens of people who have a strong feeling about the subject. So, I mean, this is the way a big issue like this comes together. We're seeing all those trappings around Maryland. Now, Michael, you mentioned the ACLU, and they are obviously a true believer in this effort in education reform. But some of these true believers are complaining that this is too little, too late, it's too slow. And the ACLU is actually going to continue with their lawsuit, and they announced that, I think, last week. So what's this all about? I mean, we've seen this before with with the Thornton legislation that was brought about because of a lawsuit. The ACLU says they're not going to drop their lawsuit. So, I mean, you can think of this – if you want to think of this in raw politics terms, this is a counterpoint to the governor saying this might be so ambitious and so expensive, it's simply unaffordable. Mm-hmm. Um, now you've got some stakeholders who are saying, actually, this is not enough. And um, the nature of school funding is peculiar, um, mainly because it's enshrined right in the state constitution that all students are entitled to a thorough and efficient public education. Thorough and efficient. And and so that so we have to offer free schools and they have to be thorough and efficient. And that has gone through court cases over the years and so forth. But how do you define what does it take to do right by our students? Right. That's always been a judgment call. Are we doing enough? Should we be doing a little bit more, a lot more? That's sort of an eye of the beholder issue mm-hmm. um, that has gone to the courts in other states. And sometimes they've had the entire state structure of school funding thrown out. We've had places where the courts rewrote the state law to come up with 
something that they thought would be constitutional. Maryland hasn't hasn't had to go that far, but this is looming in the background. Um, the the Bradford case that the ACLU and the the Maryland chapter of the NAACP have advanced. At the moment, their case sort of hinges on we haven't really lived up to every single syllable of the Thornton promise. Right. So go back to the last commission more than 15 years ago that looked at school funding and made big changes through legislation. And since then, we've had budget reconciliation bills that slowed down some of the growth, that, changed, that, that changed a formula here or there. We mm-hmm. delayed a thing here or there. When times got tough, you know, they, they sort of, you know, rounded off some of the rough edges. If you aggregate the effects of every nickel they've whittled off that plan, it comes up to hundreds of millions of dollars. And at the moment, that's kind of the price tag on the lawsuit. But now that you've got this commission who said our plan is by 2030 to get to a new vision for adequacy for all school systems. This is what we think adequacy right. this, means. This is, this is where we need to be. Right. Now, once you say that, you now have basically placed a new goalpost for the argument of where we need to be. Right. And once you have a report that says – you know, the final, the final vision for the Kerwin plan is to have this whole, you know, all these things for students who need special education. We're going to do these things for schools that have a high density of poor kids. We're going to have all these opportunities for teachers to get more, uh, more collegial work and more training and, right. and development. We're going to have higher qualified teachers. These are all the things that Maryland needs to have. This is what's going to take. You've basically just built the architecture of its own lawsuit. Well, how come we're not doing that today? So the idea is that, okay, that's great 10 years down the road, but what about Susie who's in second grade right now? It's too late for her. Right. You're going to miss an entire generation of kids because it's going to take you 10 years to do this. And, and now that we know what we should be doing, how can we in good conscience take 10 years to get there? Right. So, so I mean, this is another point of view on what do we owe our school children? And it is almost an inevitable outcome of going through the exercise of creating a vision for what the next phase of education could or should or may look like. So, I mean, that'll be part of the backdrop as we have this political debate. But while some parties are saying this is too much and too expensive or too soon or or the wrong thing, we will have some parties who will say it's too late, it's too little, and and that's you know that's it's all part of the game. And we do, Michael, on the other side of the issue, uh, there are some folks who are saying, hey, you know, this commission has some issues with how right. it's calculating these costs that it's bad at math. Right. So, so yeah, I mean, I mean, you want a good headline. So you say the current commission's flunking math, you know, things of that nature. But I mean, there are academics and ideologues who have a different point of view and whether it's just sort of the simple philosophy of money won't solve the problem in our schools or whether it's a more detailed thing that this plan is focusing the money in the wrong places or there's not enough follow-up accountability. Right. Um, there, there are different facets of this. And, and in all candor, part of the governor's message and some of the other critics have really just said the consequence on our tax system and the pressure on other funding priorities would be so great that this is a want 
but it's probably not doable. Right. And so, you know, you can, you can chart your course for where you'd like to be with schools, but what that would mean to everything else we're trying to deliver as a public service and our competitiveness in terms of taxes and being able to have a, an affordable way of life and all those sorts of things, those trade-offs are just too much. So it's basically saying, let's not put all of our eggs in one basket. Right. This is very important, but we can't put all of our eggs in this one basket. So, I mean, that is, a, I mean, again, that's an inevitable part of this kind of debate. This is, there's a reason why this is the biggest show in town. Um, a $4 billion a year commitment, no matter how long it takes to get there, that's a really big deal for a state our size that reframes what citizens would be contributing to and expecting from the public sector. So right. it's a big deal. That's why everybody should have a point of view on it. And the percent of people who respond to a poll saying they understand what this debate is about and what we're talking about should be higher than it is. I mean, <laughs> yes. I guess the people that responded must be listening to this podcast, the ones that know what it is, you know, so that's good news at least. But yeah, a lot of drama going on outside of the commission hearing room. So I'm sure that's going to continue, Michael, as we head in to the 2020 session. But let's talk a little bit now about what actually this commission needs to do before the 2020 session. So as we head from November to December, what is on the menu here, Michael? What is to come with the Kerwin Commission? So a a few more meetings. I think they've scheduled two or three more meetings of the full commission, uh, including a public hearing on the evening of November 12th. So, So next week... They're going to have a daytime agenda and meeting, and then into the evening, they've got a couple hours of time uh, set aside for public comment. That's so be a packed house. I think it'll be a packed house, and I think it'll be everything we just talked about. I think I think you'll have the advocacy groups who will say this is a bullseye. You'll have some who will say it's not enough, or it's not. It's we have to wait too long. Right. We need to do um, it now. Yeah, and then I think you'll have critics who will say it's too expensive, or it's misplaced, or it's ill-founded. So I think you'll get all of the above that whole debate. Um, having public input is an important part of this process. They've taken a little bit of a ding by not doing a public input process with the formula work group. Right. So that happened without public input. So now this window before the full commission will really be stakeholders opportunity to be heard. Um, two-hour window with who knows. I mean, there easily could be 40, 50, 60 different witnesses signed up to talk. Easily. So so that easily could turn into the sort of thing where, okay, everybody gets 90 seconds, say your piece. Right. So you submit your four-page letter, you try and say two things, and you say, I'd love it if you ask me questions, and then they won't. That's right. That's right. I'm <laughs> so, sure I mean, the directive will be no questions. Right. So, Do not ask questions. So no, nonetheless, so there there is a window for you know for county officials and other stakeholders who want to be heard. You can find the details on the Kerwin Commission website. We'll put it on the Conduit Street blog as well. Um, how to get involved in that? Right. So besides that public hearing, Michael, coming up, we have to talk about the phase in still. Right. There are still some lingering right. questions. There's a couple of pieces here. Uh, most of the state side seems to have been laid out pretty clearly. But at the decision meeting of the formula funding work group, there were two pieces that they agreed to without details. And our track record is not perfect as at anticipating what the commission is actually going to do and when they're going to do it. But I would think that the commission will sort out these two issues before they're done with their work. Um, one is 
what is the phase in for the county obligation to reach its local share of adequacy? Right. So we know that's the framework they had, they have in mind. It's going to be a new requirement on top of the current sort of maintenance of effort framework to say, you've got to do your part of the state formula. And kind of like we had been guessing, they're going to give us X years to get from here to there. Right. So if it's five years, you got to do at least 20% of it, then like got to do at least 40%, then 60, 80, hundred or something like that, Ramp it up. but we don't know what X is. And the formula funding work group, rather than say, let's do this as a five-year phase in, they said, we'll do it as a phase in details TBA. Right. So that kind of came up at the end of the formula funding work group. Hey, maybe we should right. take a look at this and make it doable for counties. We want to make sure they can do this. So maybe we should right. talk about how we phase this in. And that was kicked to the full Kerwin commission. Right. So I think the commission will take that up and decide what to do and vote on it before mm-hmm. December. Because if they don't, then it's just sort of an, an, an ambiguous recommendation in a report. Mm-hmm. And then it'll basically be a function of a bill drafter. Right. Do, like you, I mean, you have to decide when you write this as a bill, you have to say it's it's going to be five years or it's going to be seven years or three years or whatever. You have to write a bill in a particular way. You can't have X any longer. Right. So, right. so Gotta fill it in. So I would think that would happen out in the open in the work group as part of their deliberations. Not certain of that, but that makes sense. Also, the other thing they talked about but didn't nail down was other funds that counties contribute towards the education mission that don't necessarily appear in the school budget and in that sort of annual maintenance of effort calculation. So if you're funding school nurses, but you do it through the health department instead of the board of education, that's, that's supporting the schools in the same way as if they were. So we ought to count that towards your obligation. I think it's a sensible way to go, but exactly what – like that probably needs a sentence or two to spell out, you know, it includes these seven things or it, does it include anything that the county can throw against the wall? Is right. this going to be a negotiation? Does it count debt service? Debt service does it, does it I mean, does it count um, uh, employee health care, retire, you know, retiree health care liabilities and so forth? Mm. Like there's a, there's a laundry list of things that – I think the commission might very well sit down and say, here's a list of 19 things you could include here. Do you want to include all 19 Mm. or just six Mm. or just 12? And they probably go back and forth about what to include and what maybe they don't include. I would think that takes place with the commission rather than just in the back end technical side of writing a bill. That would make sense. Right. Okay, so a lot to come there. But as we've mentioned, this commission, we assume it will be wrapped up by the end of December, before the 2020 session starts, and then it turns into legislation, and then we go from there. They've been known to blow by deadlines, but you and I have seen those coming, right? Each time as the deadlines got close, we started shaking our heads saying they can't possibly get done with all this stuff. I don't have that feeling this time. I I don't have that feeling either. So I think, you know, by, you know, by the time there's snow on the ground, heaven forbid that, you know, we'll actually have probably a draft report and the members will be taking a vote and they'll go on their merry way and, and be thanked for their years of good service. Yes. Years, years of good service. (laughs) Okay, so we'll leave it there for today. Michael, I think we did a good job going through some of these interesting election tidbits. We will have some links on the Conduit Street blog if you're interested in any of these other issues. We'll also have links to our education funding chat. If you enjoy the podcast, please give us a follow. You can find us on Twitter, on Facebook, follow us on social media, follow the Conduit Street blog. But until next week, Kevin signing off on behalf of Michael, and we will talk to you soon.